Okay, good morning. Before we start, uh, I just wanted to mention that it was the first week of March last year uh, that was our first Sunday at Embassy Church, the Prater family. And so before we jump into the text, I just wanted to take a minute to thank you guys. Like, you guys have loved us well. We have been cared for at Embassy Church. We love Embassy Church. Um, we're excited to be leading the church plant in Woodstock and sad that one day we will no longer be coming here. Um, and so thank you guys for that. Uh, with that, I'm going to open us in prayer, a little curveball also. Um, we're going to begin in James chapter 1 for just a little bit. Um, and, so, and then we'll be turning to James chapter 5. So if you want to turn to James chapter 1, that can be found on page 1011 in the Black Bibles, page 1011, and then James 5 will be on page 1013. But let's open in a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, God, we come to you this morning thankful that we can say that we are no longer slaves to fear, but we're children of God. And Lord, we want to take a moment right now and just marvel at the manner of love with which you've loved us, that we can be called your children. And God, I want to plead with you this morning, Lord, that you would allow our hearts to be stirred by your Holy Spirit in such a way that we would take full advantage of our sonship, the fact that we are your children, and that we would come to you often and regularly, Lord, in the ups and the downs and everywhere in between. God, that we would, as the first impulse of our heart, whether in sorrow or rejoicing, that we would turn to you. We want to do that by your Holy Spirit, and because Jesus has accomplished that for us, that we could do that. We pray this morning, God, that you would help us, not merely to have more knowledge about prayer, God, but that we would be those who would pray more, and that we would pray better, and that we would pray deeply, and that we would pray often, that we would pray together as the church. And so, God, we ask you for those blessings this morning, and we do it in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, how would you like to be remembered, this is fun, right, as having perhaps the ugliest knees in the history of the world? You're thinking, man, why did they let Nate up here for another week, right? Like, the ugliest knees in the history of the world. Well, fun fact, that's kind of how James is remembered. James has gotten the nickname Old Camel Knees. Now, I don't know if you guys have ever seen the knees of a camel, but they're really ugly. I had to Google it, right? I looked it up and I, I saw, and like a camel, when it leans down to, to let somebody on its back or just to lay down or get water or whatever, it, it bends its front legs and those knees go right onto that hot sand all the time. And a camel's knee is just this bald, ugly, calloused thing. And there's an early church historian by the name of Eusebius who, who records some writings by some other early church dudes who I can't pronounce their name, so I'm not going to try. But, but the story goes like this, that James was known to have the knees of a camel. So that's cool. Uh, why on earth, though, would we talk about that? Because of the reason that James's knees were like that. James was said to have spent so much time in prayer on his knees before the Father that his knees were like the ugliest knees you could imagine, and it was one of the greatest compliments that anybody could give him. 
Now, if you didn't know this, James was the leader at the church in Jerusalem during the apostolic age. And James, of course, was also a half-brother of the Lord Jesus, but he doesn't like to mention that. But James was the leader of this church in Jerusalem, and the church in Jerusalem was big. I mean, we read at various times in the book of Acts that there was thousands upon thousands of people who were a part of this church in Jerusalem. And so James was the leader of what might be today called a megachurch. But here's the thing. James was not focused on programs. James was not focused on promotions as the leader of this megachurch. James was focused on, you guessed it, prayer. James was entrusted leadership over this church, and so he wore himself out, his physical body out, his knees out on the ground, praying day in and day out. And as I was thinking about that this morning, I just wonder if the leaders of our churches, if the leaders of our mega churches spent their time in prayers and less on programs and promotions, would we maybe read the headlines that we're reading today? I don't know. But all of that to say, guys, when James talks to us about prayer, we should listen. Like this is, this is the word of God, and so it's inspired, right? The Holy Spirit leading James to write what is the very word of God. But man, James was a man of prayer And so he gets it. So with that, we want to think about our big idea this morning. James is going to help us this morning to understand, and this is our big idea, that we must pray in faith, in the church, and in every situation. We must pray in faith, in the church, and in every situation. And so what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to read James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. And then we'll read the section in James chapter 5 when we get there so it's fresh in our mind. So read along with me. James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But, but, let him ask in faith without doubting. For the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. As I was reading and rereading the book of James, preparing what I thought was to preach out of James chapter 5 on prayer, it started to really be impressed upon me that unless we understand what James is saying here, we can't understand what he's saying in chapter 5, or really I think that this is the most important passage in the entire book, to understand what James is writing about here. James says, if any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask of God who gives generously to all without reproach. And so the first question that we want to ask ourselves is, what's this wisdom that James is talking about? James is the kind of book that we might call wisdom literature. We see this in the Proverbs in the Old Testament, among other books. And so what do we mean when we say wisdom? And I think just simply put, this is how we would understand wisdom. Wisdom is understanding and doing things God's way in God's world. Understanding and doing things God's way in God's world. So to lack wisdom is to lack an understanding of what God's ways are and to not know how to live out those ways in this world. And James says then, 
If you ask God, saying, God, I, I'm lacking the understanding of how to live in your world according to your ways, and I want to do this, that God will give it to us generously. He, and he'll give it to all without reproach. Like, it doesn't matter who you are. If you've just come to Christ or if you've been a Christian for 45 years, he's going to give it to all without reproach. Like, there's no merit system here. All you have to do is come and ask. And God's like, okay, I'm ready to give it, and I'll give it to all. Like, it doesn't matter But there's a kicker. James says, but you have to ask in faith and you can't doubt. And until I dug into this, like this verse, I think there were times I just read over it because I I thought to myself, man, I know my heart. Like I've doubted before. Have you ever prayed and God hasn't answered one of your prayers? And so then the next time you pray, you're like, well, I'm not 100% sure that God's going to answer this prayer or something like that. Like doubt can creep in in all sorts of ways, but that's not the kind of doubt that James is talking about right here. As a matter of fact, it's interesting. I'm not sure that doubting or doubt is the best word to be translated here. It it makes sense when we think about it, but James uses this Greek word. It's the word diakrino, and it's almost always translated to judge, judgment, or to make a judgment. So let's think about that. The idea is to make a judgment. You're, you're going to be the judge. There's facts or something brought before you, and then you have to make a judgment decision about something. So then what James is saying is this, that if you lack wisdom, you're not sure how to live according to God's ways in God's world. He will freely and generously give you that kind of wisdom because that's what he wants. He wants us to live his ways and his world for his glory and our good. That's who he is. But James says this, you cannot doubt. You must ask in faith. And the doubting is then this idea of judgment. And so here's the thought. You can ask God for that wisdom, but you can't do it like this. You can't ask him to understand his ways in his world and then sit as judge over his word and decide, now let me discern if this is actually good for me. Like if I want this. That that doesn't work. He says you have to ask in faith. So then that means that in this context, faith is this. Faith is praying to God, saying, God, you know what? I'm not sure how to live out your ways in your world, and I really want to do that. And so we pray, not 100% convinced of the timing that God will answer the prayer. I mean, I think we can be convinced he will. It says here that he will. It's not the timing or how God's going to answer the prayer. This prayer of faith is you coming to God saying, I lack this wisdom and I'm 100% convinced that it's good for me and that I want it. Now, that doesn't mean that you're saying, I know I'll do it perfectly. It just means you're saying, God, I want to understand your ways and live them out in this world. That's the prayer of faith that James is talking about. Like when we come to God, we have to come to him for this prayer for wisdom, and we have to say, God, I want your wisdom Not God and just mouth, please give me wisdom, and then go, well, let me see if this works for me, though, this week in my schedule or this year or in my family or whatever it may be. Now, do you see why James says that when you pray this way, you're a double-minded man? You're talking out both sides of your mouth. It would be, I I was thinking about it, it would be like this. Say me and Pastor Phil are walking down the road, we see a hot dog stand, and I say, man, Phil, can you buy me a couple hot dogs? And Phil's a kind and generous guy, he gets me a couple hot dogs, and then as he hands me the hot dogs, I'm like, okay, let me see, do I like hot dogs? Like, do I want to eat this? Uh, 
just in the deliberation right there, I'm double-minded. You see what I've done? I've asked him for something. I've expressed that I want it, and then I'm going to make a decision of actually whether I want it or to use it or not. That's not how we pray. And so, James, the very first thing that he tells us is that we must pray in faith. We must pray believing. And guys, this is like, it dawned on me, like, this is just gospel 101, Christianity 101, which is what? We need to believe, right? We, we've been so trained, I think, in the American evangelical world that, that the gospel is just about the forgiveness of our sins, and it is about the forgiveness of our sins because of Jesus. Amen? Like, that is big and important. But we need to believe that in all that God does for us, it's good news, You know what I mean? Like, Jesus calls his people not only to believe in his death and resurrection, but Jesus says, repent and believe the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus says that we are to repent and believe in the good news of the kingdom. Well, what's the kingdom? It's the rule and reign of God. And Jesus says, that's gospel. That's good news. We have to believe that God's ways are good ways. Or as James says, guys, we got to believe that God's wisdom is good. This is just gospel 101. And if we will believe this, God says, listen, freely, without reproach, and generously, I will give to all who ask me for this wisdom. Which is why we can read in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, that his divine power has granted to us all things, like all things things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. And what we need to do is simply receive and believe that. And then here's the thing. You've actually got to believe that it's good for you. It doesn't mean you're going to do it perfect. You're going to fail. I fail. We fail all the time. But we have to believe that this is good for us. And so, Prayer of faith, because we're going to see that same term later on in chapter 5. The prayer of faith is that prayer believing. When we ask God for his wisdom, we believe that his ways are good for us. And how often do we struggle with that? How often do we sit as the judge over God's word? The creation wants to judge the creator. The, the, The ones who have been rescued want to judge the rescuer as if it wasn't enough for us to look out and see this intense rescue mission that he has gone on through his son Jesus and just realize, man, God is for me. Like God is for me in all that he does. So to pray for wisdom in faith is to pray in a way then that would lead us to action. Do you see how that works? Like we're praying, God, let me understand your ways to live in your world, but we actually want to do it. So this is a prayer of faith that leads to action and not inactivity. This is not the prayer that takes place and then you go sit on the couch and you go, okay, now God, just reveal to me what job I'm to take, what college I'm supposed to go to. Not that you shouldn't pray about those things. It's not what I'm saying. It's not that kind of prayer for wisdom though. This is the prayer that should go from our knees to the narrow path of obedience, joyful obedience. The obedience that says, yeah, this is a narrow path and and it can be hard, but it's a good, narrow, hard path for us. So here's the question. Are there any of you who lack wisdom? Are there areas in your life you're not sure how to live out God's ways in his world? Then I would just simply encourage you this. Ask him. 
He will give it to you generously. You just have to ask him believing that it's good for you. And and I never want to lose sight of this, that if you wonder, like, are God's ways good for me? And all you have to do is fix your eyes on the cross. Like, like we, we, we take that and we remember that God sent his son to come and take on flesh and die for us, not merely that our sins could be forgiven, but that we could then enter into this relationship with him where we submit ourselves to the loving, kind, and generous rule of this king. And so if you wonder, like, is he really for me in this commandment? Guys, there's a lot of commandments that sometimes, like in the moment, I don't understand how they're good for me. But I can believe that they are because I remember the cross and I remember God's goodness in all of these other ways. And so the first thing that James wants us to know is that we need to pray in faith. Now, I'm going to turn to James chapter 5. If you're in the Black Bibles, just flip the page and it's going to be on page 1013. The next thing that James wants us to understand is we're going to answer the question, so where do we pray? We pray in the church. I'm going to read now just James chapter 5 and verse 13. That will be enough to kind of springboard us into that section, and then we'll read the rest of it in section 3. James chapter 5, verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and on it goes. So I want to do this real quick. I want to ask you guys to listen for just a minute. Listen to these two statements and tell me if you can see a difference or hear a difference. I guess you can't listen and see, but you could listen and hear. Is any one of you suffering? Okay, that's statement number one. Is any one of you suffering? Statement number two. Is anyone among you suffering? Did you catch the difference? In one of them, the word of is used. Is any of you suffering? And the other one, among. Is anyone among you suffering? And so if we ask if any one of you is suffering, it's like we're saying, are there any individuals, like is there an individual out here among sort of this undefined group that's suffering? But to say, is anyone among you suffering, is to say, is there any individual that's a part of this group from within this defined group that's suffering? And that's the language that James is using here. So now what's interesting is, and, and Phil had alluded this, to this earlier, when we took time to pray, right, before the first scripture reading, and we were praying as individuals, we were praying as individuals, weren't we? But as individual members of this group. And that's what James has in mind here, although individuals are called to pray in this passage. The prayers of this passage are never understood in terms of the individual alone. Suffering individuals are called to pray, but they're called to pray as those who are among this group. And and so prayer can never be understood merely as an individual activity. And and guys, I think this, this means too, not just on the Sunday service, but like when you're in your prayer closet and you're praying by yourself and you're before the Lord, you're praying as an individual, but never as a mere individual. Prayer can never be understood merely as an individual activity because Christians are never understood as mere individuals. Listen to the way Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Do you see how that works? Like, 
Like, look, bodies, right? Like 10 fingers, 10 toes, two arms, legs, ears, all of these things. And yet one body, right? You're not like, oh, like there's Nate 1 and Nate 2 and one body. That's the way it is. And Paul says, this is the way that Christ is, the church, his body, individually members of one another, which is to say this. There's an unbreakable, unalterable, and undeniable bond of unity which is formed and forged when a person is baptized into the body of Christ and becomes a partaker of the Holy Spirit with every other believer. Like there is a unity, a real unity that is formed and forged and it is undeniable and it is unbreakable and it is unalterable. It is a absolute reality. The difference between what it means to be a mere individual and a member is drastic. Mere individual and member, it's drastic. Now, the identity of the individual is not lost. Well, I think we talked about this a little bit last week, right? Like that whole thing, like different gifts in the body, and that's a beautiful thing, right? That diversity. The identity of the individual is not lost, but it can no longer anymore be rightly understood apart from the identity of the group. The person is no longer a mere individual. They are now a member, a member of Christ's body. And so I was trying to think about like maybe some way for us to understand this. And so the Summer Olympics are coming up, hopefully, hopefully. We'll see. The jury's out on that. But this will just help with the illustration and analogy. So imagine this. Imagine that you are a world-class track star, okay? And your race is the 400-meter individual, Okay, and you're good. I mean, like, really good. And you have, like, a sound plan, and you know when to, like, pour it on and when to reserve yourself and all of that, okay? And you're, like, best in the world, okay? Now imagine for a moment that because of an injury to one of your countrymen, that you're now tasked with running as a part of the team in the 400-meter relay, okay? What happens? There's a change. You're no longer running as an individual. You're now a member of a team. And here's the thing. You could try and run that 400-meter relay race by yourself. But you wouldn't stand a chance against four world-class athletes who are running 100 meters individually, giving it everything they got. Not only that, you're going to bump into your teammate who's trying to take the baton, and you're like, get out of my way. And I don't know the rules very well, but I'm guessing you would also get disqualified. For not, you would? Yeah, for not handing off the baton. It would be a train wreck, okay? So here's the point. When you're a member... When you're a member, rather than a mere individual, you can either function as a member or you can struggle and fail as an individual. When you're a member, guys, you can either embrace it and function as a member or you can struggle and fail as an individual, but those are really your only two options. Now remember, this doesn't deny the individuality of each of us as members of the body. It's just to say that when you become a member, that individualness that you have is now a part of a bigger group and you can no longer function as a mere member, which is why James is encouraging us to pray together as a group. Do you remember last week we talked about this as well? Like we pray as the church. We see this all over the place. So what does that mean for us in our day-to-day life? I think the first and most important thing to say is, and I think we could say this every single week and it would be healthy for us, that we have to be proactive in fighting the misguided and unbiblical spirit of our age and culture that in every way imaginable is seeking to shape our identity as mere individuals. 
whether it's through like I'm gonna define and make all of these choices about my morality, you keep your morality, but I'm gonna decide for myself, whatever it is, like everything in our culture is trying to shape us to be mere individuals and not a part of a group. Also, guys, we gotta come together regularly for the purpose of prayer, and I just gotta tell you, like here we are, we're in Woodstock, we're getting ready for this church plan, and I'm wrestling with this. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm talking to Amanda, and we're talking to others. Like, I, I just think, I don't think we can go wrong being at the church a couple times a day so that when people can come together, we can pray together. Like, that we need to be committed, absolutely committed to coming together regularly for the purpose of prayer. And, and I, I know all of the reasons that oftentimes stop us, and I think we'll touch on that later. But listen to what we read in the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 42 and then 46. Luke writes, talking about the early church after Pentecost, Peter's sermon, a bunch of people get saved. He says this, and they devoted themselves. And then the NASB translates it this way, continually devoting themselves. Because the idea of the language here is this ongoing devotion. And they continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. Now this text has pulled at my heart for a number of years, but I think now as we're, as we're at this stage, right, where we're thinking, what is the day-to-day life of this church in Woodstock? Like, what should it look like? And I'm looking at this, guys, I just don't think we could go wrong to like really take inventory of our life and start to rearrange things to come together for the purpose of prayer. Like, can you think of anything bad about that? Or do you think that maybe, maybe, just maybe God would want to bless that, would want to use us in those ways? Because when we see this, what do we see? We see in the early church, we see this group of no name, no nothings who changed the world because they were dedicated to come together for worship, for prayer, for Bible reading, for taking the Lord's Supper. Like they were just focused to structure their life around the worship of this God who had revealed himself in Jesus who had changed everything, who had set them free to the extent they're like, this stuff, I'm just gonna sell it off. Like, oh. So here's the question, I think. And each one of us probably needs to take a serious look into our own hearts as we ask this question. Would you, would I, would we take the necessary actions to make regular, and guys, I mean day by day regularity, prayer with the community of faith a priority if you knew that it would bear amazing fruit in your life, in the life of your neighbors and unsaved family members and friends. Like if you knew that this would change things drastically, that it would bear amazing fruit, would you actually be able and willing to step out of the life that you're living right now and step into this life of like focused, intense, day-by-day devotion to God? And I'm not talking about everybody selling their jobs because then we don't have any finances or money and stuff to give away and help people. What I mean is like our spare time, All of us have time after work and before and like, if we knew that God would do amazing things, would we actually believe that it was good enough to step out of the lifestyles that we were in and into this one? That's asking a lot. And and 
as I was thinking about it, I could hear in my own head and I can only anticipate what's going on right now. Like we would just judge that lifestyle to be impossible for us. Like how could I ever do that? We would judge it to be too far out of touch with the real world. Or maybe we would judge that it would alienate our children too much from their peers. And on and on the judgments go. But remember, we have been called to pray in faith. We have been called to pray actually when we pray believing that God's ways in God's world is what's best for us and guys, what's actually best for this world. Did you know that what's best for this world and the culture around us is that there would be a counter-cultural movement of people who actually loved Jesus and lived like his ways were the best, not in spite of the world, but for the sake of the world. Like that's the kind of thing that changes communities, that changes nations. Could you imagine what would happen if every one of us would make that kind of a commitment? That every one of us would commit to live solely and exclusively for the sake of Christ and his gospel, to make prayer with the community of faith a continual, even daily endeavor, and to dedicate ourselves to a life of worship and devotion like that? Can you imagine? And I think you can. And listen to these words again in Acts. Remember, day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And here it is, the Lord added to their number day by day. Did you catch that? Day by day, they came together for the purpose of this kind of worship. And then day by day, the Lord was adding to their numbers. Luke's a smart guy. He knows what he's doing here. He's trying to show us something. Like, we're praying, God, reach my neighbors, and we're slipping into church maybe on Sunday and then out the back door a lot of times. And here's the thing. So that this isn't received, I pray, as like this guilt-laden sermon, there's just nothing better. Nothing better than meeting with God, being around the community of faith. Guys, listen, we're going to be bombarded in, in the rest of our lives by the world who doesn't love Jesus, who doesn't know Jesus, and it's going to be weighty and repressive, and we're going to be feeling like we're held back, right? Like the Spirit in us is saying, be holy and live these ways and do these kind of things, and then the world is going to fight against you at every corner. It just will, because that's what happens when you don't know Jesus when you're in darkness, you don't want light to expose your deeds, right? That's what Jesus says. And so here's the deal. It's when we come together that we're strengthened and encouraged. Like, okay, so I don't like to do this a lot, but so Amanda's at home this morning fighting off a migraine, and she was just brokenhearted, not about the pain. It's the second week in a row she missed church tears. Like, it's just because we come together we sing praises to God. We hear the testimony of what's going on in people's lives. We, we hear about people who are witnessing to people who are in juvenile detention centers and the gospel going forward and all of these things. And, and we walk out of here and it's like, all right, man, I've been fed and nourished by Christ today through his people and through worship and all of that. And then we, we go out into that world and we're built up so that we can live God's ways in God's world. So friends, I would simply encourage you, same thing as last week, if the regular gathering together with the saints is not the norm, and please receive this in love, repent of that. Repent. It's not good for you. It's, it's bad for you. Okay, I wouldn't call you to repentance just so that we could like put a little check mark on the, okay, we got bigger groups now and we can report bigger numbers. Guys, it's good for you. 
Repent and receive the good news of the gospel ways of God in your life. The third thing that James would have us to understand this week is when to pray. And simply put, we pray always, but we pray in every situation. We pray in every situation. I'm going to read now for us verses 14 through 16. Well, actually, let me start in 13. We'll just back up 13 through 16. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. James is going to now undergird and sort of underline this biblical teaching that we should pray always and in every situation by calling us to pray in three kinds of situations that are often very hard to pray in. It's kind of like if you guys can pray through these, then the rest of it's easy. And so let me just show you that we should pray everywhere by taking these three situations that are oftentimes hard for people to pray and saying, okay, you got to pray here. The first one is we need to pray in our suffering. And, and just by way of like understanding the text and what's going on here a little bit, that word for suffering is like the broadest word that the New Testament uses for suffering. So physical, emotional, spiritual, uh, whatever it is. Like, it doesn't matter. If you're suffering today, if you've been under some sort of burden of suffering, like James is speaking to you today. Now, for some, praying and suffering is very difficult. It's very difficult to pray when we're suffering because oftentimes when we're suffering, we can have these feelings that God has abandoned us, Right? that he's unaware of our plight, or that he simply doesn't care because, let's be honest, God, if you knew what I was going through, you would stop it, or you must not care. We can feel that way when we're suffering, and it can be hard to pray when you feel like, like, are you just up there twiddling your thumbs, or what's going on? I am hurting down here. But here's the thing. James loves us, Holy Spirit's working through James to love us here, and James will not let us rest in those biblical, unbiblical feelings. Like, James doesn't want us feeling that way. N notice, like, it's not James's response, man, I'm sorry that you feel that way. I really hope that it gets better and you will feel like praying again. Like, that's not what James says. James says that we must pray when we're suffering. It's a command, which means what? It's a command. It's law. Like, we have to do it. To not do it, then, is sin. But let's think about that for a minute. Because I think that law can be so misunderstood. We have to ask ourselves, why does God give us law? Is it because, like, God is just a, a really good tyrant, and he loves to keep us under his oppressive thumb? No. But we can feel that way at times. But that's not why. Listen, God gives us law because of our weakness and neediness. 
God is love, and so God's law is a loving law. God commands us, guys, to do what we would usually otherwise not do for our own good. God commands us to do what we would usually otherwise not do that is meant to bring about our joy and flourishing. God's commands are life, joy, and peace for us. So James says, when you're suffering, you must pray. We cannot wait to pray until we feel like God is actually near to us or that he actually cares about our situation or that he hasn't forgotten about us. God is near to all of his children. Guys, listen, he knows your situation right now. Whatever it is, he knows what you're going through. And he cares deeply. You know how I care? You know how I know he cares deeply? Cross, death, resurrection, ascension, like all of that tells us he cares deeply about us. But here's the thing. We oftentimes, we wanna, we wanna wait and be like, God, I need to know that you care about me. I need to know that you're there and then I'll pray. And God is saying to us, I will reveal to you that I'm there and that I care as you pray. That's why it's a command, because like James knows, the Holy Spirit knows the fickleness of our heart, the weakness of our composition, that we just will not bring ourselves to do something that doesn't feel good inside of us so often. And so he says, I'm commanding you that you may have life. That's good news. Like, who does this? This is a good God. He loves us. Like, if you're a parent, you get this. Right? Like, there are just certain things your kids don't want to do. And you know, like, if you don't do this, it's going to go so bad for you. So what do you do? If you have to, you put your hands, right, on the doorpost and you force them out to do what they need to do for their own good. And you don't do it because you don't love them, but precisely because you do love them. So, this is why in James 4, 8, it says this. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. If you sit on the couch, you're not going to feel God's nearness. God has decided to work and reveal his goodness to our heart as we pray, even when we don't feel like praying. So that's the first thing about praying in every situation. Pray when you're suffering. What about this? James says, is anyone cheerful? And hey, God, I hope there is. I hope some of you are cheerful today. Like, that's good. I know. Hey, these, I think prayer sermons are always weighty because of our prayer life. Like, I get that. You guys think it's weighty on you? Like hours and hours the last couple of weeks in this text and God has been using me as a punching bag and it's been good for my soul and hard for my soul. But hey, anybody cheerful? Here's what we're supposed to do, James says. Sing praises to God. For some people, it's easy to call out to God in your suffering, okay? But it's hard to remember and acknowledge God in the good times. Like it's easy sometimes to get rolling, things are going well. Like the mountaintop is not where we see God the best usually. Things are going well and our heart, as wicked as it is, it's like, okay, like I really don't need God. I got this going pretty good. So James says, are you cheerful? Sing praises to God. Now to sing praises to God when you're cheerful is to acknowledge God as the one who has ordered your day and your situation in such a way as to bring about this joy. But I think, and even more to the point than that, even more than just going, God, you're the God who's allowed me to have this joy. I think more than that, to sing praises to God in our joy is also to make God the climax and culmination of that joy. 
by commanding us to sing joyfully to God in our cheerfulness, James is laying out a pattern and a practice that will shape us around the gospel reality that not only do all good gifts come down from above, from the Father of lights, James 1.17, but that our joy can only be made full in God. So the command to sing praises when you're cheerful is a command, guys, that's meant to allow that joy then to be directed heavenward to God and to find and experience in Him a joy and cheerfulness that transcends anything this world can offer us. You cheerful? Then take that joy and direct it to God and see in God everything your soul has ever longed for. And that's the way that singing praises to God is not just acknowledging that God is the reason for your happiness, but actually finding the fulfillment of that joy, the only place that it can actually be fulfilled. Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So here is a command to pray when you're cheerful. Like, God, why is it bad that if I'm cheerful, like, why do I have to stop and be like, okay, I'm singing? No, no. He says, don't think of it that way. Here's what God's saying. Like, you're happy? Let me take that happiness, direct it heavenward, and then exponentially give you more of it in my presence. So God says you're happy, that's good, but I want you to be like out of this world happy. That's good news, guys. That's gospel. Okay, you ready for the hard one? Praying in your suffering, you think that's this one. This one. James calls us to confess our sins and to pray in the midst of our own sin. This one's hard. Let me read for you verses 14 through 16 one more time. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And even if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. And then here's the therefore. Like this is the the pointed to us admonition because of what he just said. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power when it's working. Now, we're not gonna, one, we don't have time, but two, I didn't, it wasn't the intention of this sermon to look in depth like, well, what's that anointing of oil all about and all of this? Like, we do wanna look just briefly at what's going on here. It seems to be clear by the context of this text and the overall flow of James that this sick person who calls on the elders is sick and it has something to do with sin in his life, okay? And so here he calls forth the elders there to pray over him, but let's think about it. It's the prayer of faith that's said to save this man, and then God will raise him up. And early on, we heard from James that what it means to pray in faith is to pray, believing that God's ways are the right ways and good ways, but why would you pray that for someone who was sick, unless their sickness had something to do with the fact that they weren't living that way? Unless their sickness had something to do with the fact that they were not living under God's wisdom, as if his ways were the best ways. And so then, what seems to be happening here, the implication seems to be that the sick person is called for the elders to confess his sin, and that the elders would then pray over him this prayer of faith that God's ways are the best ways, and that God would then raise this person up from their sickness And now, one of the reasons we think that is because, look, verses 14 and 15 are all about this guy calling elders praying. He's raised up. And then, 
Like the practical takeaway, James says, is therefore confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. So it seems to be clear that there's something with sin going on here, not to mention the fact that the words that are used here for the physical healing of this person are, are words that are often used of salvation and healing of the soul and, and spiritual kind of things to be saved and to be raised up. Now, okay, that's just to kind of set the stage. Verse 16 is where we're going to get practical. Guys, right here in this text, we're commanded in the Bible by James through the Holy Spirit to confess our sins to one another. I remember early on in pastoral ministry, we're dealing with a brother, it became a church discipline case. And, and this guy was older, and he would play the old, he's like 80, play the old man card with, with, especially with the gals in the church, like, I don't know what's going on, and play this. And then one day, it was just me and him in the kitchen of the church, and I was pleading with him to come to repentance and be restored, like telling him how much we want. And he looked at me and he said, if I wanted to confess my sins to another person, I'd join the Catholic Church. And he walked away, and that was kind of the end. We had to proceed with church discipline. Guys, we're called right here by James to confess our sins to one another. It should be the regular practice for every Christian to confess their sins to another Christian and then to pray for each other. Like, that should be our regular practice. Last week, we looked at Luke 11, and do you remember Jesus is telling his disciples, followers of Jesus, that they should pray this way, together, forgive us our sins. Have you ever thought, like, why would I pray for forgiveness if I'm already following Jesus? And then we read this, and James says, we're to confess our sins for one another, to one another, and then we're to, to pray to God. And it's a way, not, not that we have to be renewed in new forgiveness, like, oh, you're, you, you didn't, you're not forgiven now, you have to be, no, no to remind us over and over again who we are, that we're sinners forgiven by God's grace. Another way to put it is this. It's just a way for us to be shaped around the gospel. This is terrifying. Do you feel that way? I want to read to you. I, I was like, this kind of captured me for a minute. I was thinking about this, and this is just what I penned. It's just a couple paragraphs about this, confessing sins to one another. I'm confronted with the reality that if I were to really do this, to bear my soul to someone else, to actually utter aloud and give voice to the darkest caverns of my own soul, I'm not sure that I could ever look that person in the face again. But there it is, divine commandment to do this very thing, to strip off all the robes of self-righteous pretense and to humbly lay myself bare before another with nothing but the promise of the gospel as my hope. Only the truth of the gospel could ever let this person look at me with anything but disdain. My only solace comes to me in the prayer of the very person who has just seen the vileness and wickedness of my own heart. It is this person that God calls to pray for me. It is this person who, having just seen the depravity of my soul, the shamefulness of my heart, must pray for me, who must plead with the Father for my sanctification and ability to trust in the work of the Savior, even for the deepest, darkest recesses of my own heart. It's terrifying 
But could you imagine how this could shape us around the gospel if we did that? If we bared our soul and there was our our brother or our sister praying over us, praying that God would cleanse us of all unrighteousness, that he would remove that sin for us, pleading for our sanctification and then praying the words of the grace of the gospel over us time and time again. Could you imagine how that would shape you? how that would turn you away from your sin and how that would push you into the loving arms of a Savior who died not only for your external little white-collar sins but for the deepest recesses of the wickedness of your heart that each of you right now are pondering just like I had to ponder. Could you imagine if we did that what we would look like as a church? And so we simply ask ourselves this. In conclusion to all of this, gathering together, all, like all of these things, guys, do we believe that the gospel is enough? Christ is enough for me. Do we believe that the gospel is enough not only to forgive our sins, but to draw us into greater and unity, unity and fellowship? Think about this, not just to forgive our sins, but to draw us together in greater unity and fellowship with the very people who know the deepest, darkest secrets of our soul. Do you believe that the gospel is enough to do that? Do you believe that the gospel is the power of God for salvation? Because if you do, then pray for God's wisdom. Say, God, I want to know more of your ways and I want to live them out. But pray in faith. Pray believing that's actually good for you. Because if not, James says, we shouldn't expect anything from God. If we're going to go to God and we're going to pray to him and then we're going to be like, well, I'll judge whether or not I'm going to do that. So friends, pray in faith. Pray to understand and to live out God's ways in his world. But don't pray as judges over his word, but those who will humble humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God and say, God, your ways are better than my ways. And where I'm walking opposed from your ways, would you graciously and lovingly change my way? Grant me repentance. Make coming together with other saints for the purpose of prayer, a regular, like, like daily activity. Could you imagine what we would look like if we did that? And then guys, the hard part, confess your sins regularly to other Christians and have them pray for you. Let's pray. Father, you are good even, even when it's hard. God, help us to simply believe that. Lord, I just, that's, that's my prayer today. Help us to believe that you are good. There is none good but God and that you are working all things out for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purposes. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.